Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week we talk about the environmental situation in the 10th Ward, Chicago's troubled housing policy, and meet some of the youth behind Yolo Cali's What's Up program. All this and more on Lumpen Week in Review for March 10th, 2017. Brian Cruz and Adeline Salgado of Yolo Cali's What's Up spoke to Jamie Trecker and John Daly about youth-produced radio and giving kids a voice. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday, drive time from 4 to 6. Welcome back, everybody, to Radio Free Bridgeport. John, we got a couple of cool guests. We're joined by Brian Cruz and Adeline Salgado from the one, the only, Yellow Cali. Tell us a little bit about how uh, you got started and about your show. Uh, what's up? Our show, well, first of all, it didn't start as a show. It started as a pro journalism program. Um, and this program... We kids are great about stories. We make those stories into audio pieces. And for those audio pieces, we use sounds. Or we use interviews with it. And it's like basically we write about anything we want. Um, the program is called Your Story, Your Way. So like everything we produce on Your Story, Your, Your Way, we put it on What's Up, which is our um, radio show on Saturdays from 12 to 2 p.m. So the, mainly the focus of your show basically is, is it life in Chicago, in Pilsen, Little Village? Is it your community or is it a national kind of looking show? What do you, what do you guys really focus on for our listeners? Well, it depends if it's close to us. And like we don't go like other states, you know, it's like it has to be like. We try to keep it um, community wise. Yes. Because the students that are part of, you know, What's Up are that live in um, Little Village. Most of them. Yeah, most of them. And, like, they they see a lot of things in their community that they want to, like, talk about in the radio. So that's why they want to focus is focus on those topics. So, like, let's say violence. If they see violence, they like to talk about violence. They want to do either a soundscape, which is uh, like an audio piece, but made with sounds. So, like, let's say, like, shootings or something like that. Or even, like, them telling their story or perspective of what they see. So, like, they talk about, like, their daily life or, like, going to school or, like, even high school dropouts. That's what they, like, talk about. But they also talk about, like, good things of what they see. It's not always negative. Yes. <laughs> what has been, uh, you were talking about the, the pieces that you guys put together. Well, what have you contributed lately? What have been some of your pieces that you've enjoyed? I mean, I don't um, have a specific favorite. I have a specific favorite shows that we've done. And, like, in the past, one of them is Downfall with the Human Race, which is um, the students from Your Story, Your Way, and that, you know, produce. Um, they focus on, you know, political views. And they talk about, like, their opinions about the new president, you know? Yeah, basically, the day before we produced that um, show was when they elected a new president. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it was interesting. It was really interesting yeah, what like, they were talking about. Like, we, we usually in a show, we only, like, three or four people participate from the program. But this time, everyone participated. The whole class. Even like, the new the students class. that were, like, on training, um, they were actually, they actually spoke up even though they were, you know, experienced with talking live on radio. So it was really interesting to see that. Um, we talked a lot of multiple topics on that yeah, um, specific may- show. <laughs> We talked about LGBT community. We talked about like immigration because we have a lot of students that are undocumented. A few of them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and like um, you know they're scared to speak up, so you know they had the chance to speak up during that time. 
also like art artists how they're affected um students education how it's been affected now um what else mm. the importance of voting as well yeah they put in women rights um and talking about that i made an audio piece for that too oh uh, yeah he made an audio piece i made like another uh parody mm-hmm. about the presidential election so i made like let's say that it was a presidential election of 2020 Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my candidates were Nicki Minaj, DJ Kelly, and Harambe the Gorilla. <laughs> so I remember hearing that actually. Yeah, so you you did, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just wanted to find like a positive way to look at it, and just wanted to be you funny. know like make fun of it. Yeah, that's how it's getting, you know, we saw it. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous right now, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to make it funny. Well, on that note, I mean, this is obviously a pretty challenging time. You mentioned that a number of your classmates yeah. are undocumented. Yeah. How has the radio show and the stuff you're doing at Yellow Cali kind of been a positive outlet to talk through some of these things with your with your peers and to talk with the rest of the wider community? Um, yeah, it has yeah. been a really positive thing because usually, um, like usually after school programs don't let you do like t- you know give you a voice sometimes you know like photography or you know like street art do like street like art artists do have that pr- opportunity but. Like when it gets to radio and, and you mix that with like teenagers, um, you get something you never expect, and that's what we got from that show. Like they actually spoke up, and that we knew, we didn't know how they felt or how like they were scared because like during that time during that show we actually um, compared their um, you know like their panic mode into like the five stages of grief. That's how they felt. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was interesting because they actually said that it's very accurate. Like, it's like losing someone you love. That's, like, how they saw it with the five stages of grief. How did you guys get in, interested in this this medium from the 1950s? I mean, uh, radio is not exactly the uh, the hippest, most happening thing on the planet here. Well, uh, before joining um, Your Story, Your Way, or the radio program, I was part of the street art class in Yolo Cali. Mm-hmm. And it was a summer when I was in my during my street art class, and I saw our teacher Stephanie. She was in the middle of the hallway with some speakers, mm-hmm. laptops, and a mixer, and there was other some two students like making like an audio test. I'm like, what are you guys doing? I was just curious, and like, oh, just broadcasting kind of live, live testing, like, oh, that's cool. And then I was kind of nervous to ask the teacher, but then I saw her like, hey, you think I could join this? <laughs> it looked fun. And she's like, yeah, of course. I mean, she, for her, everyone's welcome. Like, for example, you have a kid. <laughs> if you introduce your kid to her, mm-hmm. most likely the first thing she's going to ask him is like, you want to join my, my class? <laughs> my, my class? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, after that, um, I joined her program. And then it's, it was nothing what I imagined. It was even better. Because mm-hmm. I knew we were going to do audio stuff. But then... We did the story writing stories. We we're broadcasting live now, and I never thought we would actually get to do that. Yeah, and that's how I I got interested in this program just just because my teacher was in the hallway just doing a, <laughs> a live test. So you were telling us about this season, and you you talked about the different types of segments, live segments, mm-hmm. soundscapes, uh, produced pieces, and what what else are you uh, interjecting in the new season? Well, this season I'm doing three shows. This is my biggest show this season. Mm-hmm. And it might take two hours to do it. I'm going to do an immigration show. And it's really important topic right now. Obviously, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I might meet, um, go to like uh, 
meet some meetings about immigration and I'm gonna interview my lawyer, which is like really good and immigration topic. She's she's come out in Univision two times on TV and she's gonna be like one of my main topics in in my show. But like it's gonna be me and this other girl named Marimar and it's gonna take us two hours. So it's gonna be my like I guess the longest like, show I've I've done. Yeah, it's gonna be more it was gonna be interesting. Um, we have uh, more topics. Um, like he mentioned, the nurse show, C2E2, immigration. Um, we're hoping to make something about like prom, queer prom, anything that is focused in prom. Um, also, my strange addiction, which is something I'm actually looking forward to. <laughs> um, food. Um, one of the shows I'm doing is like it's actually, like he mentioned, is also a big deal as policing in the community. Um, lately, uh, it's been a month. I've been going to um, community meetings with um, a girl that she's um, she organizes the meetings, and I actually have um, testimonials like about parents of you know how, if they got if their children had got killed by police or even gangbangers that um, were you know harassed by police, and yeah, that's that's so far that's my biggest show. Hopefully, you know, I'm hoping to go for two hours too um but yeah it's it's gonna be interesting too but we're trying to make it you know fun and serious this season so yeah and more informational for people in the community well, um tell us about other things that you've learned what what skills have you taken away and and uh, learned in the program uh personally i've improved my grading skills a lot when i joined the program because i was first all uh, your story away we will grade about anything we wanted and um, well, since this program, my my grading skills I have improved, <laughs> and I like the way I put details and everything. It's, it has has been better than before, thanks to my teacher. She like every time mm-hmm. we do an audio piece, they check our script before we go and record ourselves. So your writing skills through just thinking about the script, thinking about your process, yeah, and rewriting. I'm sure. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and um, changing things as well. Also, uh. I like what I've learned and while doing your story way and what's up is um editing, actually editing. Um yes. Mm, <laughs> um um playing around with sound effects, um actually doing proper research, getting my facts and statistics right and also speaking, not being afraid to talk to an audience, um getting to people to get interviewed, talking to people, trying to get connections. So I could get, you know, people to interview um, or being organized, uh, obviously, to organize when I have my own show. I have to be, I have to have every segment and the time and even the promos and everything. You have to put them in order. Yeah. <laughs> and and then also personal ones, you know, being on time, going to <laughs> class mm-hmm. and, you know, starting what I have to do and, you know, getting myself together. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I've learned. So, you know, being involved in this program, we talked about what you guys have learned. What do you think the importance of, of youth radio is for you? Well, the importance of this uh, shows that we speak our minds with no fear. That, that's what we like about this program because it's in, like, an open space where, like, anyone can say anything. You will never be judged or something. And um, since we're, like, a small community, we would also like to other youth to listen to us and even adults as well to listen to what we think, not just because we're youth. Because when you're a little kid, 
you will tell your parents, oh, look, that a dog. And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you mm-hmm. know, they'll kind of ignore you. But this time, we're, we're not kids anymore. So, we're going to try to make other adults and even other kids listen to us to make them know that we're actually talking about it's serious and interesting, but fun at the same time. We try to make it fun so they won't, they will, so they will listen to us as well. Um, I think the importance of this is um, um, basically taking out what the youth have to say. Um, they have a lot of things going through their mind as a young adult. Um, I didn't know that until I actually discovered myself um, talking and um, researching and having the chance to interview people. Um, I think it's important for you to, um, you know, be involved in radio because you don't really hear youth or teens talking in a radio show, right? So, like, when you hear a kid talking to radio, it's like, wow, you know, like, how did he get there? Or, mm-hmm. well, what co- type of connections does he have to be part of a radio show? So, like, and when I tell my mom or even anyone, like, I tell them, oh, I have a radio show. I, I Well, I'm part of a radio show. They're like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Which one? I'm like, one of 5.5. And they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, every Saturday. You can listen, and if you don't listen, it's up to you. <laughs> but yeah, they don't. They didn't believe me at first until like we actually started. Um, you know, the social media went like viral with all of our audio pieces or even shows. Um, they started believing me, and it's like, okay, now we believe you. Now we know that you actually work in a radio station, and we believe that you know people in the radio station, which is really cool. And I think that's the importance of it because youth have the chance to speak of what they think is important and like especially with what's going on with you know political views um youth are scared um they had the chance to speak and speak for their friends who even in the lgbt community or even ourselves we have family members that are undocumented we had the chance to speak for them and i think that's important to give the audience a message that you know we might be youth but we know and see what's going on so like like we said, again, we try to make these shows more fun, but also serious and more informational so, you know, people could understand what's going on around them. Bad at Sports spoke to artist Rebecca Keller about her process and her upcoming art show, What Remains in the Dust, a Meditation on Objects and Memory, to be shown at Carthage College. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Uh, it's a beautiful windy day in March for Bad at Sports Center. I'm here. I'm Brian Andrews, joined with Dana Bassett, Ryan Peter Miller, and our guest today uh, in the studios here at Lovely Lumpen is Rebecca Keller. Welcome to Bad at Sports. Thank you. Uh, so, starting off uh, right off the bat, so Rebecca, your interests in your practice are actually really broad, rooted in historical practices, mm-hmm. um, uh, academic practices. Um, and and really sort of grounding art in sort of research. And right. so I think I would love to actually maybe use that as an opening volley to sort of understand um, where you situate even art making within that larger context. Yeah, that's um, – it's interesting because I started, like many people, with a pretty traditional studio practice, you know, making making objects in my studio – and one of the one of the things that um, a couple of things happened at once. Among them, I started to have all these objects accumulated, and I kept thinking, "Does the world need more objects?" 
Um, and what am I going to do with this stuff? You know, and obviously you sell some things, but that wasn't really the kind of practice that I had. And in addition, I was doing a lot of research for my teaching and my writing because I also have a writing practice. And little by little, they started to kind of merge and blend. And one of the things I became interested in was the way arts institutions and artists and the body politics sort of bump into one another and what kind of energy is generated there. So my work became very engaged with sight. Um, and of course, we're all familiar with the term site specificity. But that feels um, like something that has become so generic as to be almost meaningless. Like people don't really have a very much of a rigor about what they mean by that anymore. And so I started thinking about making work that was really complicitous with sight, where the sight and the work were generating a conversation um, in a way that made the work not just inextricable from the site, but also that really meant the site had its cultural implications, its historical implications, and its kind of its linguistic implications. So then when I got back to Chicago and the Glesner House called, I said, you know what, let me go through this. I don't want your white box gallery. I want to look through your mansion and see what uh, opportunities the architecture offers in terms of what does it tell me about the social fabric at the time it was built. And I got very lucky because the Glesner House was designed in such a way that it was an absolute sort of, it, it made completely manifest a lot of the social relationships of the time about labor, about immigration. So it was like, you know, handed to me in a platter. Once I knew what I was looking for, and so that's kind of how it began. The architecture was the argument. Yeah, yeah. This this building, um, it's such a strange. It's a. Have you ever been in it? No. No, I have not. It is a really unusual house because the outside it looks like a fortress. It sits right on the property line, and it looks like a like a Romanesque heavy fortress. And then you get inside of it. And the Glesners worked with H. H. Richardson, this this architect, and he's pretty famous, and that's the reason it's preserved. But it's completely unlike anything else he's ever built. And he, the Glesner said, we want the servants to be able to do their work without going through any of the family areas. So that means there's all these weird hallways that connect parts of the house in a certain way. And of course, they're always in the darkest part. They're always in the coldest part. Um, and the house actually architecturally reflects like social hierarchies. So, for example, the tutor, who wasn't exactly a servant but wasn't a family member, had his own little room on the mezzanine halfway between the basement and the Is the tutor the like a yeah, butler? The tutor was like the school ma- the person who – the tutor for oh. the kids. Oh, tutor. Okay. Tutor, okay. I yeah. was thinking like the tutor. You were thinking like British. Yeah. Yes, like the tutors. I was thinking about a, the, a trumpet tutor. The, li- the live-in <laughs> educational The live-in educational person. Guy. Yeah, because they couldn't send their kids to public school. Educators get no respect. <laughs> well, that's isn't that yeah. So anyway, so so stuff like that happened all throughout this house. The butler, which is the one, got the one servant they wanted to be seen because butlers were huge status symbols because men could do other things. So if you had a butler, it meant you were really rich. And an interface. It's your it's yes. your servant interface. Exactly. <laughs> and his room was in between the family areas and the servant areas. It was it was just like the the architecture of this place like sort of was like. Wow. So I decided that I would, I would 
I spent like six months researching it, and that's when I made that exhibition. So that exhibition, in retrospect, I think it was a little didactic or something, but it taught me a lot about how to approach this. So what was actually that exhibition in that space? It was called Homework, Housework, A Meditation on Labor. And uh, I, you know, I researched census data and immigration data and, you know, women's magazines from 1900. And then I compared it because I didn't want it to be main grounded in the past. I really wanted to wanted it to us to recognize that nobody is outside of a system. You know, we're all complicit in some system or another and that we still want housework to be invisible. It's still largely done by uh, women or if it's hired out, it's done by people who are immigrants often, who are people of color often. And so, um, and it's still undervalued and underpaid. <laughs> and so, so all of those things, I wanted to kind of uh, lasso those histories, which feel like they're very far into the past, and bring them into kind of contemporary. One limitation that is very different than working in sort of white box galleries is that a lot of times these buildings are pretty fragile. Um, the buildings I've done in, I mean, I'm, I'm, I should back up and say I've done a lot of work in historic sites and historic places or in places like Hull House or places that have art and kind of history. Um, now I'm also doing things, you know, I'm kind of circling back around and doing research-based work in galleries again. Um, but the work in historic sites, the site often says, you know, we can't, we, we don't have electricity there, or you can't, you can't pound anything into that wall. You simply can't. So sometimes um, I have discovered that those kind of limitations provoke creativity, and they provoke me to say, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not working in an art museum whose main function is to make my work look good. I'm, I'm literally in complicity with the site, so I have to figure out... Um, how to what a workaround is, and sometimes that provokes you know interesting things like using their collection or building things out of books they have in their library or what have you. But so yeah. you're so uh, yeah. Carthage College is hosting a two part installation uh, of your work, uh, mm-hmm. and there's an opening tomorrow. Uh, so you've Very been working. Usually, like surprise, yeah. surprise, Rebecca. Well, we are hosting an opening of yeah. your work. Yeah. Since tomorrow. You're coming, right? I am coming. Um, I am coming. And you've been working on this for some time. Yeah, yeah. Both of these, um, these are a bit of a, uh, one of them is a bit of an extension of this practice that we've been talking about. Another one is a little different, and it comes from a, a less research-driven and more experiential place. Um, so there's two installations. One is called What Remains is Dust. And that one was born actually after I had the um, horrible sort of experience, life experience of losing a whole bunch of my family members in a relatively short period of time. Within about seven years, I lost half my immediate family, which is a pretty rough thing to go through. And so after that happened, after you lose anybody, you then get all their objects and you get all the stuff that they left behind. <clears throat> and I had been um, working a lot at that point with museum collections. And I realized that these objects that people, that my family were leaving behind, formed a particularly kind of peculiar and personal type of collection, kind of an ad hoc, accidental collection. And of course, a lot of these things were very completely intimate, but completely ordinary. And so I... Um, 
not long after actually um, my my mother died, I had an installa- uh, residency, and at that residency, I conceived of this installation. Um, this was a couple years ago now, and so the final or the the uh, first really public version of it that I've been able to do is at Carthage, and I'm thrilled they're letting me. I'm thrilled you're letting me because it involves over time and it involves some rather unusual materials. So what what you see in the gallery um, what is a um, tables, like trestle tables, you know, make a table out of laying a trestle or a door across two sawhorses. Except in this case, the, the tabletops are laid across things like a wheelchair and a high chair and my mother's walker and some other sort of household items that basically form the uprights on these tables. On the tables are um, are linens, household linens, and then on top of the linens are very simple objects, you know, things, tools and scissors and household objects, some of which are my inheritance from my brothers and my mom, and some of them are things that other people have given me that were left to them or just simple, very basic sort of objects. The process that I'm so happy that Carthage is letting me do is, um, so after they're laid out, I then have taken a combination of my mother's face powder, my dad's body powder, salt, and um, and cornstarch, and mixed them together to form this sort of powder, which is then sifted on over the objects repeatedly over and over. So imagine snow blowing across a field. You know, initially the snow outlines any irregularity in the shapes and makes you more aware of it, but eventually it kind of covers it and softens it. And over the next several weeks, um, the gallery attendants and I <laughs> will, will continue to sift this powder over these objects. So eventually their shapes will become quite softened and the powder will slip off the tables. And of course, you will the gallery is perfumed with this scent. Um, and then about halfway through the exhibition, I will start taking the objects off and putting them in um, drawers and other kinds of storage boxes that are along the sides of the galleries. And when you take the object off, of course, a silhouette is left by the dust. So literally, what remains is dust. Like what you hear? Full episodes, archives, and more are available at mixcloud.com forward slash radio. The Trump Diaries. Day 42, March 3rd. The Wall Street Journal reported that Attorney General Jeff Sessions used funds from his campaign to travel to the Republican convention, where he met with a high-ranking Russian official. That seemingly trivial detail is important because the Trump administration claims Sessions was there as a senator and not as a campaign surrogate. No, Sessions actually failed to disclose those Russian contacts under direct questioning during his confirmation hearing, and Sessions, of course, was forced to recuse himself from the justice investigation into Trump contacts with Russia. The latest revelations will keep the heat on Sessions to resign. And it was revealed that Mike Pence used a private email account to conduct public business when he was governor of Indiana. That was legal, but his email was hacked and it has raised security concerns. 
Pence apparently used an AOL email account to communicate with top advisors on matters including the security gates at the governor's residence and the state's response to terrorist attacks around the globe. Pence's use of a personal email to conduct public business echoed Hillary Clinton's use of a private server and email account when she was Secretary of State, something that Pence criticized Clinton quite harshly for. And Republican legislators in at least 16 states have filed bills to toughen penalties against public protests. Some of the measures are either backed by supporters of Trump or responses to demonstrations against Trump and his policies. The measures will face constitutional hurdles as citizens do have a First Amendment right to protest. But experts say this is an attempt to chill free speech under Trump. Day 43, March 4th. Trump accused former President Obama of tapping his phones at Trump Tower the month before the election, leveling an explosive allegation without offering any evidence. Trump called his predecessor a, quote, bad or sick guy on Twitter as he fired off a series of messages claiming that Obama had my wires tapped. He likened the supposed tapping to Nixon, Watergate, and McCarthyism, though he did not say where he has got this information. A spokesman for Obama said any suggestion that the former president had ordered such surveillance was simply false. Now, during the 2016 campaign, the federal authorities began an investigation into links between Trump and the Russian government, an issue that continues to dog Trump. His aides declined to clarify on Saturday whether the president's allegations were based on briefings from intelligence or law enforcement officials. And the head of the FBI, James Comey, asked Justice to publicly refute the claim Sunday night, saying this charge was groundless. Justice has not responded. Day 44, March 5th. Trump's accusations against Obama came out of a series of conspiracy theories circulating on arch-right-wing blogs. Some believe the gambit is an attempt to distract the public from a growing scandal involving the Trump administration's ties to Russia. Trump, however, demanded a congressional inquiry into the alleged wiretapping, claiming an abuse of executive branch powers. Even Republicans are blanching at that request, with Marco Rubio quoted as saying, quote, I'm not sure what it is that he is talking about. I'm not going to be part of a witch hunt. Trump's explosive tweet did have the effect of taking the spotlight off the fact that Sessions, his attorney general, lied to Congress about his dealing with Russian officials, and Trump was said to be pleased that the news networks were covering his claims and not the continuing Russian scandal plaguing his administration. Day 45, March 6th. Trump signed a revised version of his Muslim ban, removing citizens from Iraq from the original travel embargo and scrapping a provision that explicitly protected religious minorities. These revisions did little to quell criticism, and opponents vowed to fight it in court. The order, which comes about a month after federal judges blocked Trump's first Muslim ban, will not affect people who have been previously issued visas. It is said to be phased in over the next two weeks. And Trump apparently does not believe the FBI director, James Comey, that Obama did not wiretap Trump Tower. This highly charged claim is untrue, and Comey says it must be corrected. So far, the Justice Department has not issued a correction. Quote, I think he firmly believes that this is a storyline that has been reported pretty widely by quite a few outlets, said a Trump spokeswoman. But none of the stories she referenced make any such claims at all. And the Supreme Court announced that it would not hear a major case on transgender rights, acting after the Trump administration changed the federal government's position on whether public schools had to allow transgender youth to use bathrooms that match their gender identities. In a one-sentence order, the Supreme Court vacated an appeal court's decision in favor of a transgender boy, Gavin Grimm, and sent the case back for further consideration. And the New York Times reported that so far Trump has managed to reverse 90 federal regulations, including those that include requiring phone companies to ensure your customer's personal data is not stolen, for Wall Street firms gouging customers to cover their own losses, and from blocking people with mental health issues from buying guns. According to one 
lobbyist quoted, it is a feeding frenzy with corporate lobbyists simply writing to the Trump administration and seeing the requests granted nearly immediately. And saying their patience is at an end, conservative activist groups backed by the billionaire Koch brothers and other powerful interests in the right are mobilizing to pressure Republicans to fulfill their promise to swiftly repeal Obamacare. Tim Phillips, the president of Americans for Prosperity, was quoted as saying, quote, We've been patient this year, but it is past time to act and act decisively. And now with the finish line in sight, we cannot allow some folks to pull up and give up. These groups are deeply concerned that the specter of angry citizens at multiple town hall meetings across America might cause congressmen to blanch and continue taxing the wealthy to pay for poor people's care. Day 46, March 7th. WikiLeaks today released thousands of documents that it said described sophisticated software tools used by the CIA to break into smartphones, computers, and even some internet-connected televisions. The data dump is seen by some as having connections to the Russian government. The documents, which appear to be authentic, is the latest coup for the anti-secrecy organization and a serious blow to the CIA, which maintains its own hacking capabilities to be used for espionage. The White House, usually so strident on leaks, said nothing about the data dump. Trump has previously praised WikiLeaks. And many influential conservative lawmakers and activist groups panned the new health care legislation drafted by House Republican leaders throwing the GOP's plan to undo Obamacare into serious doubt just under 24 hours after it was released. Many of the groups dissed the bill as, quote, Ryan Care, and one, the head of the Heritage Action for America, said, quote, the House Republican proposal released last night not only accepts the flawed progressive premises of Obamacare, but expands on them. Other groups decried the plans as, quote, a betrayal of campaign promises. And Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee called for the appointment of a special counsel to lead the criminal investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, saying the appointment was necessary to shield the inquiry from the appearance of political interference from Trump. The Republican chairman of the panel, Senator Charles Grassley, said he saw no need for the appointment of special counsel at this time, as the panel took up the confirmation of Trump's nominee to be Deputy Attorney General Rod J. Rosenstein. Rosenstein would oversee any inquiry into Russian interference in the election with Jeff Sessions' recusal. And the White House, concerned about the possible political repercussions of a Republican effort to defund Planned Parenthood, apparently proposed preserving federal payments to the group if it discontinued providing abortions. The proposal, which was confirmed by Trump, was never made formally and was rejected as an impossibility by Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood receives about $500 million annually in federal funding, which helps pay for women's health services, but not for abortion services. Ivanka Trump apparently urged her father to tread carefully on the Planned Parenthood issue, as well as during the Republican primary contest. Day 47, March 8th. Women across America went on strike today forcing the cancellation of school classes nationwide and the shuttering of several businesses. And the White House is again facing a crisis over its links to the Kremlin after it emerged that Trump met the Russian ambassador during his election run last April. Trump and his aides have strongly denied that the president had any contact with Russia during his campaign, and Trump has already seen his first choice for national security advisor resign over contact with Ambassador Sergei Kizyak, and his attorney general recuse himself from any investigations into links with Russia for similar interactions. Now, Trump is directly in the firing line, not because of the meeting itself, but because of his repeated denials. Trump said at a press conference just last month, quote, Russia is a ruse. I have nothing to do with Russia. Haven't made a phone call to Russia in years. Don't speak to people from Russia. This is not true. And a majority of voters support appointing a special prosecutor to investigate alleged ties between Trump's staff and the Russian government, according to a new poll conducted. 56% of registered voters support anointing a special prosecutor, a far greater share than the 30% who oppose an independent counsel. 13% of voters don't have an opinion 
Union and Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, approved foreign policy advisor Carter Page's now infamous trip to Moscow last summer on the condition that he would not be an official representative of the campaign. Page's trip is now a focus of congressional and FBI investigations into Russian influence in the 2016 presidential election. And Trump, searching for money to build his multi-billion dollar border wall, is apparently weighing significant cuts to the Coast Guard, the Transportation Secretary Administration, and FEMA. FEMA, of course, provides disaster relief after hurricanes, tornadoes, and other natural disasters, and the cuts to the TSA, which protects our nation's airports, have raised eyebrows among Republican colleagues. And 538's weighted poll average has 44% of Americans approving of Trump's performance to date. 49% do not. These are the Trump Diaries. Kiefer Dunn was joined by writer Maya Diskmova and Chicago Public Housing Initiative's Executive Director Leah Levinger for an in-depth discussion about housing policy in Chicago. Buildings on Air airs the first Saturday of the month from 2 to 4 p.m. This is Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and politics from a different perspective. So last show, we spoke briefly with Zach Mortis about the planned development of Lathrop Homes. And today we're going to continue our conversation on housing affordability in Chicago with Maya Duksimova and Leah Levenger. Um, Maya is a writer who frequently covers issues of housing. Her articles and translations have appeared in Harper's, Jacobin, Slate, Broadly, Truthout, In These Times, The Chicago Reporter, and The Reader. Um, and Leah Levenger is the executive director of the Chicago Housing Initiative. The mission of the Chicago Housing Initiative is to amplify the power of low-income Chicago residents uh, to preserve, improve, and expand subsidized rental housing, promote community stabilization, and advance racial and economic inclusion and equity. Maya, Leah, welcome. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so... Um, one of the major reasons why I'm excited to have you on um, is because I think a lot of architects and people kind of only engage in debates around public and affordable housing on a very sort of abstract level. Um, the American Institute of Architects often states its commitment to affordable housing, but for the life of me, I have no idea what they actually do about it. Um, I suspect it's nothing substantial. I'd be happy to be corrected. Um, and, and also, as I was explaining before we started, uh, in architecture school, we often sort of use our expertise to analyze uh, poverty, housing, and segregation issues. But after that, um, the conversation kind of dissipates. Uh, we never really learn about policy or how to actually engage um, in these issues um, in a substantive way. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you guys on to talk about sort of policy and, um, you know, uh, these issues. Um, so... Maya, I follow you on Twitter, <laughs> and last month you live-tweeted from this meeting in Jefferson Park, and Leah, I think you were there as well, um, and it was, it was really insane to hear this kind of like intense dog-whistle racism and the sort of myths about affordable housing that, um, you know, these residents in Jefferson Park, uh, these NIMBYs, not in my backyarders, uh, were, were spewing. Um, so you just published uh, an article in The Reader about it uh, titled Opposition to Affordable Housing in Jefferson Park. It's nothing new for Chicago. Um, so I'm curious, what's the project in Jefferson Park? Sort of why were you there in the first place? Um, and did you expect there to be that kind of reaction or that intensity of reaction? Uh, yeah, so the project that's been proposed is a seven-story 100 apartment uh, building that would have um, 80 of the 100 apartments would be 
uh, affordable apartments, um, 20 of them for people, uh, families making, um, I believe, less than $25,000 a year, and then um, another uh, 60 for uh, folks who are making less than $46,000 a year. And, uh, and then the uh, remaining 20 apartments would be market rate rents. And the important thing about this development is that it will also have uh, quite a few units that will be fully wheelchair accessible and um, uh, apartments will be available for people with various disabilities. And also it will prioritize um, Full Circle Developments, which is the nonprofit developer working, proposing this project, uh, would prioritize um, applications from veterans for at least half of the apartments. And so uh, actually, um, I heard about this development uh, for the first time. Um, uh, the Alderman Arena's office, who's the alderman uh, up there in the 45th Ward, um, they were uh, announcing the proposal. And um, I know that Leah has been uh, working on this uh on this initiative as well, and she knows a lot about it, so um, she can she can say more about uh, the background of uh, and and the sort of uh, vision for this for this proposal. Sure. Um, hey, everybody. <laughs> so uh, this proposal for the first affordable housing in Jefferson Park. Uh, it's the first affordable and first CHA funded housing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not publicly owned. It's not public housing. It's own would be owned by a not-for-profit, but um, it would house families from the CHA's waiting list mm-hmm. um, for that component that Maya mentioned. Um, Kiva, to your question of did we expect the kind of overt, racist, intensive reaction that we got? Um we knew it wasn't going to be the easiest thing to get done, um, but I would say that in 13 years of organizing with low-income tenants on affordable housing issues, this is the first I've ever seen something quite like what is happening in Jefferson Park. Um, it's it's a bit mind-blowing. Um, I haven't previously encountered, you know, 150, 200-person white mobs uh, chanting, no Section 8, no Section 8, uh, no CHA, no CHA, and... Um, it's definitely been, it's been eye-opening about a force that has forever shaped the, the sighting of CHA funded housing in Chicago, um, that force being racism, Uh, and it is still with us and it is on display in pretty dramatic ways on the Northwest side right now. Yeah. And one of the things that, so there's been sort of a couple of waves of opposition to this proposal. First of all, um, Alderman Arena has been proposing other developments around the Jefferson Park Blue Line stop that would really substantially beef up density um, in in that part of the neighborhood. And there's sort of been months of various <clears throat> organized opposition to these proposals because they, you know, people say that they would be too tall, they would alter the quality of the neighborhood. Um, and so then this was announced, and the very first meeting. Uh, to get community responses and and to kind of tell the community about the details of the of the proposal happened on uh, on February 9th. and uh, that was the meeting at which there was chanting about no Section Eight. People were saying things like, "Oh, you know, Cabrini Green started out as Veterans Housing too," 
which is true with the first part of Cabrini Green was built in the 40s as veterans housing. But uh, the, the gist of that statement was that, well, you know what Cabrini Green became. So, you know, watch out. This, this, this is veterans right. housing, too. And then after that first meeting, which I live tweeted and which, uh, you know, was also written about um, DNA Info covered it as well. But uh, it seems like that the, those opposed to this development became aware that they were basically portrayed as and and they were coming you know they they were acting as bigots they were saying racist things and they realized this might be a a PR problem for them so the next uh event that was held uh was at the end of February they there was an organized picket outside of Alderman Arena's um ward office and uh I saw a lot of the same people at this Hmm. at this protest as were at the first meeting but this time, the chanting and the signs were very different. So people weren't saying no Section 8. People weren't saying no CHA. People were chanting, Force, everybody's welcome, four stories or less. So the, there was this kind of pivot in the rhetoric from, we don't want the people that you're bringing here, to we don't want this density. And granted, there has been a, a history of opposition to higher density in that neighborhood, but this, the, the, the protest against this development began with a protest about this being CHA, you know, this being like another quote-unquote project in that derogatory sense. People were saying things at this meeting such as like, I don't want people bringing their cousins and nephews and, you know, this kind of coded language, uh, this coded like racist language was being used. Um, and then, you know, the very same people at the next protest had organized on Facebook and there were calls on Facebook saying like, do not bring signs that say no Section 8. Focus on the message of we don't want this higher density development. Uh, we don't want overcrowding in our schools from all the new families that would be moving in. So, and and there's a, a long history of opposition to affordable housing in Chicago based on those grounds, those arguments about density, about school overcrowding, about increased crime if you bring more people to the neighborhood. Um, and uh, there's also a long history of, of, you know, the overtly racist opposition being kind of repackaged in this more... PR-friendly manner. Yeah, I, th- I think what's so interesting about the, all the dynamics that Maya just laid out um, is that there is an anti-upzoning movement right. uh, in Jefferson Park, and that's been there for years. But the maximum you would ever see in terms of protesters around just higher story buildings, you know, like maybe you get 30 people out at a protest around something like that. This, the only difference, it's actually lower density than other developments where there's been maybe 30 people protesting. The only thing different about this one is, of course, the affordable nature of it. Um, And you get 150 people, 200 people out screaming, right? So um, they are, the opposition is attempting to to repackage and kind of make subterranean the emotional currents (laughs) that are at play. But um, we know what's there and we know what's driving it. Alderwoman Sue Garza of the 10th Ward dropped by hitting left to provide an update on the issues, from pet coke and manganese contamination to activism roiling Chicago's largest ward. Hitting left with the Klonsky brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, we have a guest uh, with us today, uh, um, uh, Alderman from the 10th Ward of the city of Chicago. For many of Northsiders who don't know where the east side of Chicago is, who think it's that that bunch of uh, glass and steel boxes over uh, on Michigan and, uh, and 
you whacker. No. We should tell them where the real east side is. The real east side. Southeast side. Southeast. Southeast side. Farthest it's, southeast you can go before you get to uh, yeah, it's, uh, the city limits. Yeah, yeah. People, most, people, most people are like flying over it on the skyway. That's but, right. But down below... The, the fighting tenth. <laughs> That's right. And it's That's yeah, right. it's where the salt of the earth of the city. Uh, the mighty tenth ward. Yes, you're you're a, a progressive, older woman mm-hmm. in a in a ward that's not used to having uh, progressives uh, in the leadership. You usually been out on the street fighting the uh, the power. Right. Um, but now you've got to uh, take the lead in building a building up a, a ward uh, in a. Post-industrial Chicago. What, mm-hmm. What's your vision? Uh, what, what do you see ahead? Well, you know what? I think that one of the things that's happening. Um, you know, I'm still fighting a lot of the remnants. There's still people there that you know push back just because I beat the other guy, and that's okay. They didn't vote for me anyway, so no big deal. But um, I think what's happening now is that people are like starting to see like, oh my God, we have a voice. Oh my God, she really wants to know what what we think because everything I do is a collective decision. <clears throat> we do particip- participatory budgeting. Um, we do surveys all the time, like, how do you want to see this? What do you want to do? Um, and that we've never that had that happen before. So um, people are really grateful. And I think a lot of people that didn't really know me, uh, once they get to know me, they think, wow, she's, she's the real thing. I'm not a politician. I don't want to be a politician. Um, as corny as this sounds, I'm a public servant, and I tell people all the time, I have 56,000 bosses, and that's who I have to answer to. That's where my loyalty is, not to the mayor. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of people whose loyalty lies with the mayor, and I, I'm not that person. I come from a world where it's unity and one for all and all for one. That's the way I was brought up, <clears throat> you know, always stick up for the little guy. City Hall is not like that at all and it's you know you hear the adage don't trust anybody that's true what what can you do in one ward though i mean uh if you've got a mayor the mayor's vision for the city at least the one he talks about is turning chicago into uh, the silicon valley of the midwest mm-hmm. uh in reality in a ward like the 10th i think that means uh having the people in the 10th uh, receive all the waste. <laughs> for, well, and, actually, yeah, we, yeah. we just had a really big win. Um, S&H Bell is in our ward. Um, they store manganese there. And we actually wrote a letter um, asking, the law, I'm sorry, asking the health department to please examine their fugitive dust plan. Um, if we wouldn't have did that, it would have just went under the radar and they would have been just doing business as usual. Um, Bad we, enough you had all that pet coke out yeah, there. Let's, and, go, yeah. let's go back a little bit mm-hmm. uh, about about the history of the fight around. Because there were a lot of support. When I was coming down during your campaign, there were a lot of supporters in your mm-hmm. campaign that got engaged in the, that you got engaged that got engaged in your in the, in politics and in mm-hmm. the movement through the fight around pet uh, coke. around pet coke. Uh, yep. I remember uh, Olga Batista, for example, right? Yeah. Uh, who's a leader now and uh, uh, spokesperson around this the issue of environmental concerns in the 10th Ward. So go back a little bit and to the beginning of this sure. fight around Pet Coke and the Coke brothers. and the- mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the Coke plant is, um, the Coke brothers have a facility in our ward that um, was housing Pet Coke. And Pet Coke is a derivative of coal, but it's a finer product and it, it blows, it creates a dust. And it's used? It's used for fuel in food. other countries. We don't use it here because it's, dangerous and it's dirty and 
Um, it's toxic and all these things. So we don't use it here. So but the Koch brothers store it here and send it overseas. Store it here. And BP, which is right in Whiting across the border from us, was shipping it in. I mean, sometimes there was trains coming into our ward, probably 125 cars, uncovered pet Coke. Trucks were up and down East 106th Street all day long. Now, this stuff's been there a long time, but it, it just really, they, um, BP actually started a third furnace, so <clears throat> they were really ramping up over there. We had piles of pet coke, literally probably 10 stories tall, huge amounts. And in August one summer, this guy, Anthony Martinez, took a picture of the sky and it was all black. And that just really kind of sparked this, like, oh, my God, what's going on here? What and do our lungs look like? Right. Yeah, the exactly. sky's black. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, this was taken at a Little League field that's right, was like literally probably 100 feet from the pet coke piles that, um, where kids played and where homes people live. So Olga brought it to my attention. We met in the uh, front room of Katie Koval and Olga. And people just started getting together saying, hey, we got to bring this to people's attention. So we knocked doors. We had community meetings. We went to schools. And we just started educating people about what this stuff is. So um, we just started fighting back. And then there was a or- – so the, then the city had, a, the city had an ordinance, mm-hmm. but it didn't go far enough. No. We wanted to have them to limit the throughput so that we could stop all these trains and trucks. And it's we still don't have one. Yeah. But – um, KCBX, the Koch brothers, and Beamsterboer, we closed down the north site. That's no longer there. They sold it. So that was a huge win, and we, um, they can no longer store it. It's a transfer facility. So in everything they had to enclose what, what is there, but there's nothing on the ground there anymore. So it was, humo- it was a humongous win. And then when did the manganese issues, was that at the same time or did that come up? No, that just came up. Yeah. Um, S&H Bell's been there a really long time, probably I think it's 1970, but they've been in operation for, God, 90 years because they're also in Pittsburgh too, right? So, um, again, Olga, I got to keep you know referring back to Olga and Peggy from Southeast Environmental Task Force. They're fantastic can't say enough. They're like, hey, you got to find out about this. And um, we talked to SNH Bell, and I said, you know, you've already gotten four extensions on these air monitors. Come on. Um, I asked the city, please don't give them another extension. They have to be compliant. And in the meantime, I said, and please review their their uh, fugitive dust plan, which didn't. they had nothing covered. Um, the trucks weren't covered. The barges weren't covered. They need to store the manganese in a closed facility. And manganese at certain levels is, is, toxic. is toxic. Right, and we don't know what kind of levels are there. So they did comply with the, the, the meters are up. They put them up last Friday. Um, and I, I'm assuming they know about the city rejecting their um, their fugitive dust plan. So The it, city meaning <clears throat> you, got, you got support actually from the city, from the mayor? Hello, I did, yeah. <laughs> what was the trade-off? What did you have to do? I didn't, you know, <laughs> to be quite Who did you have to kill, I mean? Well, you know, I, I, here's here's the misconception. You know, I, I, a lot of people told me, well, you better vote with the mayor. You better do this because if you don't, you're not going to get anything. You're not going to get anything. I told people, you know what? Come down and look at what 16 years of yes votes got us. Nothing. Yeah. And guess what? I've, I've only been there. It'll be two years in May. We have nine new businesses opened. Um uh, the, the old jewel sold, the U.S. Steel site sold, and you know we can talk about that too. Yeah. But 
I mean, um, things are moving right along. We got a $10.2 million bike park, big marshes there. I, it's it's not true. I mean, I still we still get our city services. We still, you know, th- things are starting to roll, and I haven't been denied anything. And I haven't had to sell my soul, and I won't. Like what you hear? Full episodes, archives, and more are available at mixcloud.com forward slash lumpinradio. The Lumpin Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.